uh, we are uh, really grateful that you guys are here again, so thank you so much, and uh, we are privileged uh, to have uh, Trevor Wax come and, and speak to us about having a life that's on mission. Uh, in your bulletin, you can sort of see uh, where he's at and where he's been. He is the uh, currently the Bible and Reference Publisher for Lifeway uh, Christian Resources, and he served as the managing editor of the Gospel Project, which is a small uh, gospel-centered small group curriculum, which is really... Uh, been pervasive in in, um, in uh, ecumenical communities around around our nation. So we're really thankful for that. He's also uh, you said part time, didn't you, Trevor? The third the teaching pastor at Third Baptist Church. Is that part time or yeah, part time at a Third Baptist Church. For those of you who aren't Baptist, that's how we grow churches. We start the first one, split, have the second two, and we split again. We have third. So so we're really there's five and six of those down there in Tennessee somewhere. I know there are. So praise God for that. Just multiplying all the time. And uh, and he's uh, he also contributes. You can see the, the list that he's uh, the the Washington Post or uh, R N. Christian today. He's very well written, very well read. We're thankful for that. You see his books there, of which uh, Brandon talked about. They're uh, they're really really great. He's also have a, has a podcast uh, discussing um, difficult passages of scripture stuff, helping us to understand that. And so we're privileged to have him here. But this is this is why I think we're privileged to have Trevin here. I've been uh, privileged. I've been privileged to read his blog over the last couple of years, and and what he helps me do personally is he helps me think about Jesus Christ. Uh, because uh, right thinking about Christ leads to right belief about Christ, and right belief about Christ leads to right action for Christ. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to, to think about Christ and believe in Christ by faith and live that out um, so the world can see. And uh, and there's there's lots of voices, right? Lots of voices are telling us who we ought to be, what we ought to do, how to follow Christ. But, but Trevin's one that's it's really, really clear and thoughtful and challenging. And my prayer tonight is, uh, and for tonight and tomorrow, is that as you listen to him, uh, we're privileged not because he's Trevor Wax, we're privileged because he's a Jesus lover. And he's trying to help other Jesus lovers follow Christ. And that's the, that's the real blessing and privilege tonight. So I, I pray that you open your mind and your heart, uh, and as he speaks to us in the Holy Spirit, encourage us, challenge us, and we leave here differently this week. And so would you, uh, uh, would you praise the Lord for Trevor Wax as he comes and t- talks to us? Thank you. It is an honor to be with you uh, this evening. I appreciate your prayers. I've been a little under the weather this week. Uh, I got hit by one of these awful late winter colds. I guess brought on by all the late winter cold <laughs> that we've had across the country. Uh, if you will uh, open up your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 8. And you may also want to uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture tonight and put these together for a particular reason as we uh, begin our time together and begin to uh, to talk about the gospel as being a better story than being true to yourself. Uh, so beginning with Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, we already heard a little bit of this during the worship time. Let's read this again together. Calling the crowd along with his disciples... He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And then if you'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. 
the author of Hebrews, writing about Jesus, writing about the Christian life, says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we give this evening, this weekend to you. We ask that you would uh, open our ears, open our minds, our hearts uh, to the truths of your word. I pray, Father, that you would grow our confidence in you as our Savior. We pray that you would grow our confidence in your word as powerful. We pray that you would grow our passion for your mission as we seek to uh, be faithful to you in the time that you've called us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm honored to be with you this weekend and to uh, to look at our current cultural moment, some different trends and different topics that are important for us to consider. And I, I want to bring the light of the gospel to bear on our society right here. Now, you, you may wonder why I've chosen these two passages, Mark 8 and Hebrews 12, and why I've put them back to back this evening. And the reason is, is because sometimes I hear people uh, quote the words of Jesus, a very famous passage here about denying yourself and taking up your cross, right, and following him, losing our lives. Sometimes I hear people quote Jesus in such a way that they would give you the idea that self-denial is the goal of the Christian life, that, that denying yourself is what we're, we're all about, as if sacrificing happiness or what you desire the most in life, that that's the way to achieve this goal of self-denial. And I think there are people that see the Christian life as a drudgery because of this. They, they think that the daily battle of I'm dying to myself it means I, I've got to regularly choose misery over joy. And somehow, if I choose to sacrifice my happiness again and again, this is the way of the Christian life. That's how I show the Lord that I'm serious about the Christian life. And I think some people think that is faithfulness. But there's a clue in this passage, in Jesus' words, that show us that he, his call for self-denial is not a call to constant misery. Jesus says, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, right, and the good news, will save it. And then he adds, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? Those are, those are piercing questions, but note that how Jesus assumes that the one who is going to be saved is the one who loses his life because of the good news. So somehow Jesus is saying, losing your life because of the good news is actually better than gaining the whole world. So you realize what this implies? That the self-denial that Jesus is talking about here, the, the, the call to count the cost when you follow Jesus, uh, that it's, it's better than gaining the whole world. It's, it's better than holding on to your life at all costs. That better than living for something other than Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is, is not saying we sacrifice happiness for a life of misery to show him that we're serious. He's saying, no, you sacrifice something 
because you are going for something that's better, something that's greater. And that's why I read the passage from Hebrews 12 also. Jesus himself shows us what losing your life looks like. He is the author, the source, the perfecter of our faith, right? And it says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Jesus picked up the cross, denied himself, not because he was denying joy, but because he knew this was the way to joy. And so when when Jesus took up his cross, he was not saying that self-denial is the ultimate goal of life. He took up his cross because of the joy that lay on the other side. So losing yourself, taking up your cross, dying daily. Listen, this is not the commitment to a life of misery. It's the sacrifice of temporal things for eternal joy. It's the sacrifice of something that may even be good because there's something better. The choice to die so that you can be resurrected. This is the, the invitation that we have. So in the, in the time that we have this evening, I want to show you just how countercultural that message is um, and why it is vitally important not only to believe that Jesus's words here are true, but also to see that they are good, that they are better than the stories that our world tells us. And to accomplish this task, we're going to need to do some cultural analysis. We're going to be looking at a lot of different cultural aspects about what our world believes, um, how the gospel shines light on the, the different longings and the different lies that we see in the world's perspective. Okay, So, so I, I, I frame up this evening with these two passages because I think uh, it's important for us to see just how countercultural Jesus's call is here but then also how much better the story that Jesus, the picture that Jesus is painting is than what we see in the world. Okay? Now, before we get going, I want us to, we should at least ask the question, because I know some people may wonder, why do we do this kind of thing in the first place? Why, why step back and, and do cultural analysis? I mean, is it even, is it really valuable to, to take a good look at the culture. After all, aren't we called to just, you know, know our Bibles and uh, that be it? You know, we want to, to be good students of God's Word. Why, why also should we be students of God's world? Why should we look out around us and see? And I think that the, the that's a good question. I think it's a question we should wrestle with. But the answer to that goes back to our missionary mindset. If we truly are going to live on mission, as Jesus has called us to be, we have to know the people we're called to. And, and, we, and we, we get this instinctively when we're talking about other cultures and other societies. Sometimes we forget that it's also applicable here. Okay, so uh, for example, if you were called to be a missionary to India, uh, you would assume that a missionary to India would need to understand something about Hinduism or the local variety of Hinduism that's going to be most prevalent in the area that you're going to be in India, right? That you would want to, uh, um, you, you'd want to know something because something of your missionary strategy would be to show how Christianity counters the Hindu worldview and that Christianity is also tells a better story than what Hinduism tells. That Jesus is better than Hinduism. That's part, that's part of what you would do as a, as a missionary. If you were called uh, to be a missionary to Iran, for example, uh, would you not study the 
mindset and the understanding of Muslims in that area? Would you not want to know where Christianity and Islam diverge? Because you know, a good missionary knows what Christianity teaches. So yes, they know God's word, but they also understand what God's word says as opposed to what the the surrounding culture, the surrounding society would say. They know how to present God's word in a way that is going to be able to be heard by people in that society and also is going to challenge at certain places. Okay? So instinctively, we get this when we talk about missionaries, when we think about going to a Hindu context or a Muslim context. And all I'm saying we should do tonight and tomorrow is that if if it is important for us to know the society that we are called to reach if we are missionaries, if we think of ourselves as missionaries, then that means that we have to be doing the same kind of thing. Uh, if we're going to be good missionaries in our context, then we need to be able to understand what is the dominant story that the world around us is, what, what, what are people telling themselves, and how do we show that Jesus is better than that? That's the question we, we have to ask. If we never wrestle with that question, I have to question whether or not we really see ourselves as missionaries in the context that God has placed us. Because that's what a good missionary does, okay? So, so we're asking the question this morning, or this evening and tomorrow, not just where are we on mission, where are we in 21st century North America, we're also asking ourselves, when are we? What is the 21st century like right now? What is it that we ought to know about our our culture and some of the trends in our culture and things that are going on? So as we look out at the dominant worldview uh, around us, uh, we're going to, to dig deep into some of the things that the world believes. And we have to start here with some foundational beliefs, okay? So are you ready for a deep dive into what people believe all around us? Some of you are going to already know this because you're already, you got friends and family members and coworkers, and, and this is going to sound familiar, but you're going to be able to have some categories, hopefully, some hooks to hang some of those beliefs you've already heard to be able to, to put them together, okay? We start with a term that a, some sociologists uh, studying the religious views of young people in North America uh, uh, came up with about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. Some of you are familiar with that. You may have heard the word moralism. It's kind of a shorthand way of saying it. It's a, it's a big sounding sociological word, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism. But what they mean by that are five central beliefs. And they found this to be true of people all throughout North America. When they were doing their studies, it was of young people. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. This is now the people in their 20s and 30s, okay? So it's be, it's increasingly becoming the, the dominant understanding of the world all through our society. And what they found that was somewhat troubling was that even in churches across the country, it didn't necessarily matter the denomination uh, that, that these five beliefs were seen to be central. So let me just explain. You might have heard that term before, that phrase, that that uh, nomenclature of moralistic therapeutic deism before, I just want to lay out what those foundational beliefs are so that you understand better what that means. Foundational belief number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, so um, if you were going to pick one of those three words, moralistic, therapeutic, or deism, which one would you say that one 
goes along with the best. Deism, right? It's the, the, the view that there is some sort of God that created the world that uh, uh, sort of watches over things, but really is not very involved in human affairs, doesn't intervene very often, okay? That's the first major belief. Good news with that belief is that for most people in, in North America, uh, we're not typically dealing with people who are hardened atheists. You may meet some agnostics here and there. You may meet some people who wonder about the existence of God. But most people, uh, I'm sure you might have atheist friends or coworkers, but for the most part, most people assume there's a God, some, some sort of God. So the good news is there that we're, we're not necessarily having to do apologetics work of defending the existence of God with most of the people we come into contact with. Sometimes it'll be necessary, but not, not most of the time. Okay, so that's the first, first view. Second view, second foundational belief. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay, now, which one of those three words would you say that would be? More moralistic, right? God wants us to be nice, moral, decent people. And in fact, all the world religions basically teach the same thing. So it doesn't matter so much what religion you belong to or what it is that you believe as long as it turns you into a good person, makes you a good person. That's what God wants. That's the most important thing, okay? Uh, Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Which of the three words is that one referring to, do you think? Therapeutic, right? That the central goal of life is that you be happy and that you feel good about yourself. So you see some of the it helps you understand some of the self-esteem movement and things like that that, that have uh, picked up so much in recent years. Okay, that, so that's the third. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Now, foundational belief, now this is a bit of a mix. If you were going to put two together, what would you say? Deism, God doesn't have to be involved with therapeutic unless you need him. He's kind of like the, the divine butler. You, know, you reign, my children? I don't know. I, like this, basically, God is there if you... God, God, the whole purpose of God is to help you in your problems and help you become happy and, and whatnot. Okay, so that's the fourth. And then the fifth foundational belief. Good people go to heaven when they die. Which one would that be? Moralistic. Right? That's basically salvation is accomplished through morality. These are the five foundational beliefs of many people in, in 21st century North America. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Our society is awash in this worldview. And I, I don't think it's a stretch to say even a lot of longtime church members are not immune to this. So, I want to drill down a little bit on one of the statements of those five, the third one, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I want to do, I want to drill down a little deeper into that one, uh, tonight. It, we, we could, we could talk about any of these, uh, uh, foundational statements, but this is the one that I think is, is most important for us to look at. According to, to recent research from Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman, 84%, now, now, I want you to mark down these numbers or remember them in your mind because I'm about to come back to them to to startle you for a minute, okay? Uh, 84% of Americans 
or sorry, 84% of Americans say enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Okay? In other words, 84% of Americans are hedonists. That is one of the definitions of hedonism, right? That the pleasure, that pleasure and personal fulfillment is the purpose of life. This is what Paul was talking about when he was talking about the, the philosophy of eat, drink, and may, be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? So uh, 84% of Americans say that is the highest goal of life. I wanted to see another stat. So how do you enjoy yourself and find fulfillment? Well, 86% of Americans say you have to pursue the things you desire the most. Pursue the things you desire the most. So highest goal of life is to be happy, to find fulfillment, to enjoy myself. How do I get there? About the same number of Americans will say, you got to go after whatever it is you want. Find whatever it is you want and go after that. And then 91% of Americans affirm this statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. To find yourself, look within yourself. So let's sum up then. From those three stats, what most Americans believe, they believe the purpose of life is enjoyment that comes from looking deep within to find your true self and then pursuing whatever brings you happiness, okay? That's what most Americans will say. Vast majority, I mean, 91%, that is is a a, 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 a pretty important statistic. Okay, uh, now here's, I want, I want to show you what church-going Christians say. Uh, not just Christians who check Christian on a survey. Practicing Christians, church-going Christians. And here's why I wanted you to mark those numbers down. I want you to see the, the difference, or should I say the lack of difference, between the church and the world on these three stats, okay? Highest goal of life is enjoying yourself. Remember, what number was it? 84. For practicing church-going Christians, 66%. 66% of Christians who go to church regularly say that the highest goal of life is enjoying yourself. 72% say you pursue the things you desire the most. And 76% say to look to find yourself, you look within yourself. So is there a difference? Yes. Is the difference as stark as we might hope? No. No. So this is a challenge for us, right? Because we, 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 we may know the words of the Westminster Catechism that the point of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But these statistics show that there's a different story that's captured the imaginations, not only of people in our society, but also a lot of the people in our churches. We may even know the right answers and still be living according to the wrong story. Even worse, this could mean that a lot of people go to church because they think the church will help them do what it is they're already looking for. Instead of being caught up in the great story of the Bible and the story that the church tells in the mission of God, they have their own story, their own mission, their own pursuit of their own happiness, and they go to church because they think the church will help them get to a better place. That the church will help them become the better person that they want to be. That the church will basically help them pursue whatever it is that they desire the most so that they can enjoy their lives as much as they'd like. So, so get the picture here. You might have two people standing in the same congregation, singing the same song, hearing the same sermon, 
one person is worshiping God with really the idea, and they're living their life according to the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the person right next to them is they're singing the same songs because they think this is going to help me become a better me, going to help me find happiness and enjoy my life more. This is the, 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 the picture that we see. So I, 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 I think it's important for us to lay out where we are, both inside the church and outside, but this is a good snapshot of what many, many people in our society believe to be true about the world. And this is the foundational story that gives, uh, that, that gives, uh, 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 the, the shape, uh, and the form to people's lives and how they make decisions. I'll give you an example from a best-selling book. This was a fun book to read. Um, it's called The Happiness Project, written by a woman named Gretchen Rubin. Uh, she's a 30-something wife and mother. She went through this period of time where she was in this, she calls it a midlife malaise. She says it was a, a recurrent sense of discontent and almost a feeling of disbelief. And she, so she sort of has this, not quite a midlife crisis because she's in her 30s, but, but she, this malaise she talks about where she, she's not happy, not as happy as, he, as she thinks she should be. So she goes on this happiness project to change her life. And at the beginning of the happiness project, Gretchen crafted 12 personal commandments. The first three go like this. Number one, the greatest commandment of all, be Gretchen. Number two, let it go. And I think this was before Frozen. Uh, Number three, act the way I want to feel. Okay? Be Gretchen. She says, be Gretchen is the first and greatest commandment, hardest to fulfill. She says, I have an idea of who I wish I were. And that obscures my understanding of who I actually am. So she's trying to find this unique path to happiness. She wants to feel happy. And she quickly finds out, and I I mean any of the uh, philosophers from way back, even in the Greek uh, uh, times, uh, uh, the the period of Greek philosophy would have understood this. She she begins to understand. There are some insights in this book that you think she's, she's skirting around the edges of some really profound truth. One of them is that feeling happy is connected to feeling right that things are fitting, that things are the way they they should be. But then she kind of defines right this way. She says, feeling right is living the life that's right for you in occupation, location, marital status, and so on. She says, it's also about virtue. So I'm thinking, well, I mean, is some Aristotle coming out, right? You know, she says, doing your duty, okay, living up to the expectations you set for yourself. I thought, okay. uh, So I'm like, well... I don't know that most people would say that is virtue, but, but the, the, and somehow it makes sense in 21st century North America, right? The point of life is this. To be yourself, you need to discover whatever it is that makes you happy, whatever feels right for you, and then go for it. The reason her book is a bestseller, and the reason why it's a fun read, and the reason why a lot of people, and uh, people like, like Gretchen seem to be delightful people, is because a lot of people in America today, this makes sense. That this is the purpose of life. Find out what makes you feel happy. Live the life that's right for you. And then find whatever tools you need to make it to your destination. So she sees being yourself as the greatest commandment. I mean, we, we think love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and for, for it's be Gretchen. But a lot of people in our society see being yourself, being true to yourself as the greatest commandment. And so the greatest failure, what would then be the greatest failure? We might even say sin. You know, 
what would the greatest sin be? Well, to, to sacrifice your own desires or to sacrifice your dreams to gain someone else's approval or to conform whoever it is you think you are to someone else's view for your life. It's funny, what Jesus commands us to actually do for many people in our society is the greatest sin. This is the story that, that Gretchen tells and This makes sense to a lot of people in our society. There, there's a philosopher... There, one of the books back there that I recommended be in the bookstore, um, uh, it, it's a profound work. Um, uh, there's a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, uh, who um, it's sort of an intro to his thought from another author. Uh, the, Charles Taylor's big books um, are really long and like really repetitive. Uh, but this one's much clearer and just right kind of to the point to, to lay out what he says. But he he says, you know what our era is? We live in an age of authenticity. The, he calls it the age of authenticity. Now, he doesn't mean being authentic versus being hypocritical. He, he says, no, what I mean by authentic, he says, it's the understanding of life that says everyone has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it's important to find and live out our own humanity as against surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious and political authority. You know what he's saying? He's saying all of us have our own way of life, our own unique essence, and we need to figure out what that is and we need to express that to the world. Uh, another good word for authenticity and the way he's using it would be like nonconformity. Don't be like anyone else. You be you. Right? That that's the point of life. You need to find out who you are and you need to be true to yourself as opposed to whatever someone else wants you to be. You, you can't just be what your parents want you to be. You can't just be what your church says you should be. You can't be what anyone or anything can tell you who you are and who you need to be. You know, this is the, this is the foundational story that gives a lot of the dramatic tension to a lot of the stories that we tell in our world. So, Take Disney movies for as an example, okay? Have you ever noticed how a fairy tale changes when it gets the Disney treatment? Uh, the story's main details and the main characters and the plot points may stay the same, but the Disney twist usually, not all the time, but usually makes the point of the story a moral principle about discovering yourself. Okay, let's just go through them real quick. You know, as, as long as you're true to yourself, all your dreams will come true. That's kind of the Disney way, right? It's why Ariel rebels against her father as she longs to be part of this world she wasn't created for, right? It's why Aladdin becomes the prince that he once pretended to be, wanted to be, was deep down inside, right? Uh, why Mulan refuses to conform to her society's expectations, Okay? And it's not just Disney movies. Most of the cartoons that rip off Disney movies are, are the same way as well. But, but the, the whole point of a lot of the, these stories is that um, you discover yourself, you be true to whatever it is you discover, and then you follow your heart wherever it leads you. Now, I'm not saying go home and like burn your Disney DVDs. or anything. Like, I, I mean, I think Disney movies, most of them are, are fantastically produced and, and wonderful. I, I just... The memorable characters, the animation, I mean, they're delightful in a lot of ways. I'm just, I want you to notice the storyline and why one of the reasons that they 
they, these inspirational stories resonate with us is because they reaffirm what so many people in our society believe to be the purpose of life. That's one of the reasons they're so popular. But, but take note. This is what Americans believe. It's not how the rest of the world sees life. Mulan bombed in China. Did you, did you know that, that, that the, the animated film about a young Chinese girl who joined the army during the Sui dynasty in place of her elderly father, it was not received well in the country that it was based in. I, I mean, the creators of Mulan, they had this tremendous Asian cast. They had, uh, they, they wanted to pay homage to like these Eastern influences in religion. The movie flopped there. In fact, I, I mean, you're saying, okay, what, what, wait a minute. Why? What, what happened? Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but while thousands of little girls all across America were at home looking in their mirrors, singing along with Christina Aguilera, Reflection, uh, along with a Chinese heroine, uh, most Chinese viewers said, mm, no thanks. In fact, the Chinese gave a nickname to Mulan. They said she's foreign Mulan. You're like, wait, foreign? She was Chinese. No. Not really. See, no matter how Chinese she appeared, Mulan showed through her actions that she was really an American in disguise. Uh, she was much too individualistic in her thinking. She was not respectful enough of ancient authorities. Her self-promoting ways really stick out in a Confucian culture where modesty and community are prioritized over self-assertion. Uh, the Disney version actually shows her fighting not only for her family's glory, but also for her own glory. And that is an idea that is at odds with a lot of Chinese culture. So Chinese viewers did see Mulan's actions as bold and daring, as did a lot of Americans. But the difference is this. While while Americans thought Mulan was heroic for being true to herself, no matter what anyone else thought, uh, the Chinese thought Mulan was being selfish. See, what Americans saw as a virtue, the Chinese viewers saw as a vice. Now, my point right now is not to say that the Eastern way of viewing the world is right in all accounts and the Western way is wrong. I, there are problems and idolatries and oppressive aspects of the Eastern view, the traditional understanding of society as well. And so Scripture would, criti would critique... If, if Scripture is truly over against all cultures, there are aspects of the Eastern way of thinking that Scripture is going to critique, just like there are of the Western way of viewing the world. So uh, Scripture is, is going to be offensive in every culture at some level, in some way, right? So my point is not to say, oh, look, Americans are all wrong and the, and the, the Chinese vision of life is all right. I, it's simply, I just, my point here is a little bit not as uh, um, uh, big as that. I, I wanted to bring that up, though, just to show you that some of the things we take for granted in this part of the world are not what humans all across the globe take for granted. Some of the things we assume are not actually true, are not actually just understood and accepted by everyone everywhere. And it helps us to get out of our own culture a bit to be able to see things from a different perspective and be able to ask questions and maybe see, you know, some of the things I just assumed were this is the way things are may, may not be the case. So we're talking about pursuing happiness. We're talking about being true to yourself as the foundational purpose for life. 
It's another question we have to wrestle with. If the goal of life is to find out what you want, go after it, pursue it, eventually have whatever it is you were looking for, why do so many people in our, li- in our society, once they have gotten what they achieved, what they wanted to achieve, still say they're unhappy? I mean, what, what, how elusive this quest for happiness is. There may be some fans here of Tom Brady. They tend to be only in this part of the, the country. Uh, <laughs> um, Tom Brady, of course, quarterback for the New England Patriots has had an illustrious career. Um, I mean, won three Super Bowls before the age of 30. I mean, we saw the the Super Bowl um, comeback this year. Even people that don't like him have to say he's one of the greatest football players of all time. And yet, Tom Brady once asked, he was doing a 60 Minutes interview, and he said, why do I have Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? He says, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this this can't be all it's cracked up to be. He says that, and then the interviewer is almost a little shocked, right? So he presses him a little further, and he says, I love playing football. I love being a quarterback, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. There's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. What's Tom Brady saying there? He's saying, look, I'm not dissatisfied with my career. I'm not dissatisfied with my riches. I'm not dissatisfied with my family life. I'm dissatisfied with myself. I'm not the person I want to be. And so what is his solution? Well, if 91% of Americans think that to find yourself, look within yourself, this is what he does. So he says, I've got to look deeper I, he says, there are other parts of, about me that I'm trying to find, right? So he's, he's, he's talking about, if I'm dissatisfied with myself, what's the answer? I've got to look deeper within myself. This is common for a lot of, a lot of millennials, but it doesn't necessarily bring the happiness you'd expect it to bring. I, I was reading in New York Magazine recently, uh, Heather Haverlasky, she's a columnist for um, Ask Polly, um, one of these columnist that receives letters from from different people. And she says, you know, a lot of people talk about the millennial generation as if they're spoiled and entitled and overconfident. Um, I I don't like millennial stereotypes. Part of that is because I am a senior citizen of the millennial generation. Um, And and so I I tend to think the stereotypes sometimes can can be unfortunate. But she says this. She says, you know, the millennials she hears from feel guilty and inadequate at every turn. She says they compare themselves relentlessly to others. They are turned inside out day after day by social media. Here's some of the testimonies she's heard from people. I often feel overwhelmingly middle ground or average in my coworkers' eyes. Another one. When is he going to realize that I am an anxious mess who overthinks everything and hates herself like a lot of the time? Another one, I think my primary emotion is guilt. Another one, when I am happy, it only takes moments before I feel guilty about it. I feel desperately unworthy of my happiness, guilty for receiving it out of the pure, chaotic luck of the universe. Guilty, unworthy, anxious, 
failing to meet society standards. Listen, I know a secular society doesn't like to talk about sin and judgment. Let me just tell you, guilt and anxiousness lurk in every human heart. And it's not just because of social media, although I, 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 I would say that magnifies the problem. The feelings of unworthiness do not go away. So what should we do? Well, the world says you pursue happiness, whatever the cost, by becoming the best version of you possible, right? And so what happens is a lot of people in our society decide they will create that person online, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And then they have this curated version of life and they get all the likes and the affirmations from people and they like the fact that everyone is seeing them online and seeing their selfies and, uh, you know, you know, you look terrific, you're gorgeous, that kind of, like all the, all throughout, they're getting all this affirmation, but they also have this deep and nagging sense inside, that's not really me. So all of that affirmation, some of it ring, rings hollow. Another problem is that it's exhausting to live this way. So one of the things that um, Heather Haverleski says, this is a very insightful article in New York Magazine that ends terribly. I'm, I'm going to explain in just a second. She, she says, merely muddling through, doing your best, seeing friends when you can, trying to enjoy yourself as much as possible is, according to the reigning dictates of today's culture, tantamount to failure. You must live your best life and be, I, I, I wanted to say your best life now, but I, but she just said, you must live your best life and be the best version of yourself. Otherwise, you're nothing and no one. That's, pre- that's a pretty high standard, right? It, she says, living your best life and being the best version of yourself, what, what the columnist is saying is, it's just another benchmark of failure. And, and then she also says this, if there's a mass religion, it's interesting she would say mass religion. She says, if there's a mass religion of global culture, it's the belief that by believing in yourself without fail, you can get everything you've ever dreamed of. Like, cue the Disney soundtrack, right? Uh, but then she says, everything depends on your faith and your ability to squelch the doubts in your head that arise when yet another glamorous on-brand winner pops up in your Instagram feed. In other words, if you're not happy, if you think that the purpose of life is to enjoy yourself and that you can achieve your happiness. If you're not happy, what does this mean? It's your fault. It's all on you. You're to blame. And here's how the column ends. So I'm reading this and I'm like, yes, this is so true. It's exhausting. It's, it's you know, and then all this guilt. And she said, so what is the suggestion that Haverleski says? This is where it ends so badly. And it's just like, I just want to pound my head against the wall. Um, she says, millennials should get over their feelings of guilt and shame by accepting themselves as they already are. Enjoy exactly who you are and what you have right here, right now. In other words, if you're not happy with yourself, look deeper within and become happy yourself. And I'm like, no. I'm like, no, that's like prescribing fatty foods to someone who has a cholesterol problem. Like, it's it's compounding the problem by, by, by saying, oh, if you're going to be happy, you got to look deeper within yourself. But that's the way of the world. To find yourself, look within yourself. So here's the question we've got to ask in the time we have left. Don't we have a better story than this? I mean, what if Jesus's 
counterintuitive call to lose our lives, to deny ourselves, not find ourselves, to pick up, to, 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 to pick up our crosses, if that's actually the invitation to happiness that goes far beyond anything we could conjure up in, in our hearts. So what's the story that the gospel tells? Well, if the gospel tells a better story of salvation, it, it's only because we have a starker story of sin. So we, we, I want us to, to start here. First, we've got to notice, we've got to, to note the severity of our sinfulness. We have to take a stark look inside to discover the dark depths of our own hearts. The problem is not that you feel guilty. It's that you are guilty. The problem is not that you feel unworthy of happiness, but that you are unworthy of any good gift that comes from our Creator. Scripture, this is where Scripture is, again, counterintuitive. Scripture doesn't brush off these feelings of guilt and anxiousness and unworthiness and just tell people, just accept who you are right now. No, Scripture actually presses deeper into those feelings to say, look, the the feeling that you have that you're being judged by your peers, that's actually a sign that's pointing to the reality that we deserve to be judged by God. We can't get away from judgment. If you decide, oh, I don't have a judgmental God, well, then you're going to have a judgmental society. And you're going to be judging yourself according to the standards of everyone around you. So sin, we have to tell a, a, a darker story of sin first. We, we also need to recognize that it's really difficult to follow our hearts. It's complicated. Here, here's the question we have. Who really knows what the heart wants? G.K. Testerton wrote this. The self is more distant than any star. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, but thou shalt not know thyself. What he means is, figuring out what your heart wants is actually harder than pursuing what your heart wants. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, the prophet Jeremiah said. It's incurable. Who can understand it? And even after you come to Christ and you have a new heart, we never fully understand all that's going on in the vast cauldron of desires that we have. That's why King David prayed that the Lord would cleanse him of his hidden faults, you know, those areas of sin that he was unaware of. That's why Paul spoke of the Lord having to judge his heart because he, and here he is an apostle, is unable to get an accurate reading of his own motivations. So there's a longing in humanity to have the desires of your heart, and I want to say that's right. But the lie is that your heart can tell you exactly what those desires are. Instead, we should look at the words of the psalmist. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in God and your desires will match his. And note, it's not find yourself, but delight yourself. And the object is not find joy in things or in yourself, but in the Lord. This is the difference that we see in Scripture. And you know what's beautiful? The gospel has a fresh word for weary and guilt-ridden people. We don't look inside ourselves for salvation, but up to God as the Savior. The gospel should come as a relief to people. 
It, listen, if your understanding of the gospel is that you've got this burdensome list of moral regulations that now we are to fulfill, then you really haven't captured the beauty of God's grace. We are relieved that the pursuit of happiness is not something that we have to attain on our own, but that the God of all joy and the God of all love has pursued us into the depths of our wicked hearts. We are relieved that we are not the center of the universe, that God is at the center and that we find our fullness in loving and enjoying him. We are relieved that the gospel tells us of a Savior who cried out, it is finished, so that his accomplishment is where we find our peace. The gospel should feel like a relief. Our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you, as Augustine wrote. So the gospel frees us from judgment from God, judgment from others. In Christ's death on the cross, our sin, our guilt is absolved. Are, we, we are received into his family. No, apart from any merit on our own, this is this lavish display of God's grace precisely because we are unworthy. Those feelings of unworthiness are true. We receive it even when we don't deserve it. And now we want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord on the other side of salvation. So the Christian life. Why is it so hard for people to see how attractive the Christian life is? It's because a lot of people in our society think you have to choose between two options. Either you be authentic and you be true to yourself, or you conform to society's constraints. A lot of people think that's the way. And a lot of people think being authentic and being true to yourself is one way to go. Conforming to society's constraints, that's the religious way. That's where religious people go. They just sort of follow the rules without question. They sort of deny their own uniqueness. So a lot of times, and unfortunately, a lot of times Christians will lean in both of those options. So on the one hand, you have Christians who do lean to the to this side of just uh, uh, sort of uh, seeing the Christian life as a rule-keeping thing. And then you have other Christians who lean to this side, and they just basically redefine holiness and the pursuit of God as to just whatever it is you want the most. And they just sort of baptize whatever it is their own pursuit is with Christian lingo. Oh, just look inside your heart. Ask everyone to affirm what you feel. Be true to yourself, and then God will bless your authentic expression of your inner essence, right? That's happening, right? On, on, most of the time, it's on the left and on the right in Christian circles. Two options. That's what a lot of people think that you've got. You either live authentically by rebelling against the constraints that are imposed on you by others, or you live in conformity by keeping the rules in this ordered godly life. True Christianity says, no, no, no. Both of those ways are wrong. In in response to the people on this side who are like, we should be authentic above all else. We say, you know, you don't know yourself well enough to actually even grasp your deepest desires. And even if you did, your desires are often wrong. We need deliverance from our deepest instincts, not celebration of them. Okay? And in response to people over here who are just like, you know, we need to keep the rules and we need to conform, we say, no, no, salvation doesn't come through a checklist of rules. It's not like by willpower you can manage your sin. The gospel frees us from the burden of the law, right? We believe this. We sing about this. Christianity says something very different altogether, and it actually combines authenticity and conformity in a very creative way. It's an entirely different story, and it's so much better. Let me show how it brings these two together. So what does it mean to be authentic if you're really a Christian? 
You know, a lot of times people think if I'm going to be an authentic Christian, that means I'm just going to be open, honest, vulnerable about all the struggles that I've got going on. I'm just going to tell people I'm just such a dirty sinner. I just keep doing this. I'm just going to sort of lay, lay it all out. I'm just going to, this is me just being me. I'm just going to be honest and real. And I, I want to say to that, to be authentic as a Christian means I am to be true to the person that Christ has named me, not the person I think I am inside. I am to live according to who God says I am. I am his redeemed child. I am a person remade in the image of Christ. And now I'm going to act in line with that identity. So here, here, here's what we really should be saying in Christian circles about authenticity. As a Christian, if I'm saved by grace through faith, I am not authentic when I sin. I am sin- when I sin, I'm sinning against my newfound identity. I am being inauthentic when I choose to disobey God. I am being inauthentic when I give in to temptation. I am rejecting the identity that God has spoken over me. So true authenticity is not accepting my own self-expression, but accepting the self-expression of God through Jesus Christ. And living according to who God says I am a beloved son and daughter of God. That's Christian authenticity. Different than the way the world sees it. Different than the way a lot of Christians see it. But that's truly what authenticity means. And then to be a conformist, to be conforming or non, to be not conforming to the world as a Christian, what does that mean? It means we want to have our minds renewed and our lives transformed. We're going to talk about this a little more in detail tomorrow, but it means we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. So yeah, yeah, we are all about conformity. Let's just say that. As Christians, we believe we are to be conformed into the image of Jesus. But notice that we are also nonconformists because that means we're going to look like rebels to the rest of the world. We're going to actually be rebelling against the world. The true rebellion is in the heart of the Christian who follows Jesus by swimming upstream against the currents of the world. As G.K. Chesterton again said, any old dead thing can float downstream. The sign of life is that you're struggling as you swim upstream, as you swim against the current. That means when everyone else has decided they're going to follow their hearts, we say we will follow Jesus. In our era, I don't think it takes courage to be like Gretchen Rubin and to decide that we're going to create and live by our own standards. I think that's just what people expect. True courage is not deciding what's right or wrong for you, but seeking to discover what is truly right and wrong for you and for everybody else. It it, it takes courage to look outside yourself, to bind your heart to an ideal that is bigger than your own, own understanding, that is bigger than your own set of standards, to investigate truth rather than try to invent it. And what's our purpose in life? It's not to enjoy our own happiness and pleasure. It's actually to enjoy God, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That That's where the Christian's hope is for our greatest desire to meet our greatest delight. That's what sets us out on our adventure. So, you want to tell the world a better story? 
if we're going to tell the world a better story, then our focus should not be on loving ourselves and being true to ourselves, but on loving and being true to God and our neighbors. We should see our life as a journey in which God has rescued us from our fallenness, not affirmed us in our fallenness. See our life as a journey in which we are being remade in the image of God. So that the, the, the mile markers on our journey of salvation are so that uh, we, the ever-deepening discovery of God and His grace and His goodness, that's the defining mark of our life, not looking deeper and deeper within ourselves and discovering ourselves. That's the way of claustrophobia. Our hearts are too small. Our hearts are too dark. Our will is too frail to base all of our happiness in ourselves. And so as you lean forward, and we're going to be like the people in Hebrews 12 is talking about, running our race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, you, we can be a little bit dissatisfied with ourselves right now. Not because we're like Tom Brady and we figure there's these aspects of us that we haven't found. In fact, the aspects of our hearts that haven't been unearthed yet should probably scare us and not, not delight us, right? Um, no, we can be dissatisfied with ourselves as long as we're embracing the vision of who God is making us to be and we are leaning forward, striving to be more and more just like Jesus. And if we're dissatisfied, it's because we're like, you know, I'm not enough like Jesus yet. I want to be more and more like him. That's godly discontentment. That, that sense of godly leaning forward because we want to be more. So Christianity has a fresh message for those who think that salvation comes from mustering up your own willpower, making your mark on the world. No, Christianity says God made his mark on the world through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where salvation is found. That's where true authenticity is found. The truly courageous in our society today are those who crucify the self that the world tells us to be true to. Why do we crucify the self that the world tells us to be true to? Because we know what happened three days after our crucifixion took place. We believe in resurrection. That we are raised with Christ to become the person that God always intended us to be. So the greatest adventure that we could ever imagine and the adventure that we call other people to come along is that we would die to ourselves daily, not because we're going for a life of misery, but because we know this is the greatest and most eternal joy. It's only through the putting our old self to death that we taste the reality of resurrection. That's the beauty of the gospel story. It should come as a relief to people who are weary, anxious, guilt-ridden, looking inside themselves and not being able to find salvation, not look inside to find salvation and be true to ourselves, but to look up to God for salvation and be true to the person he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this time that we've been able to have together tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people in 21st century North America, that we would be faithful that we would shine the light of the gospel in the society that we live in, that we would tell a better story, that the world would see that you are good, that you love us, that you are gracious to us. Help us, Father, in our feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness for those to point us to you. We pray that in our conversations with others who feel that same sense of unworthiness, the same sense of inadequacy, the same sense of failure and guilt and sin, that you would help us to be able to show how the gospel comes as a soothing balm, as a relief, 
to people who are struggling against their own sins, their own selfishness, their own failures. Help us to tell the better story that you've given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.